Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Dr. Daniel Natush, as you'll hear, is from New Zealand. Unfortunately, I called him Australian. I quickly corrected myself. Daniel is a reptile specialist. He works with reticulated pythons out of Indonesia. He works with alligators in Louisiana. He works with crocodiles in Kenya. And he is a pro-sustainable use guy. He's also very much a scientist. And so when we start talking about sustainable trade of animals, you always got to think about philosophical bias versus science. You've also unfortunately got to look at science and how people can use data in a different type of context that is wrong. And that bias that they inherently come to a table with influences their science. And so this conversation is really diving into a specific paper that Daniel wrote that pushes back on some flawed science tied to the trade and use of reptile skins in the luxury trade brand. 
You're probably asking yourself, well, this is a hunting podcast. Why should we listen to this? Well, it completely ties into the whole sustainable use system of hunting. Sustainable use system of hunting, or the sustainable use system of wildlife, is inherently tied to all sustainable use systems across the world. So an Aussie living, not living, stuck in France, right? Yeah, that's right. Actually, a New Zealander who's for a long time... I'm so sorry. Oh, man. When people call me Australian, I get so mad. And I I know that you get mad being called an Aussie. I I think it's probably more forgivable between New Zealand and (laughs) Australia, given our accents. But, um, But yeah, so a Kiwi who moved to Australia when he was a kid because he loved snakes and reptiles that much and couldn't bear living in a country that didn't have any. No, no, no. You you have one. (laughs) What, a politician of some sort? Oh, no, maybe. No, it's not not technically a reptile. The Tuatara, right? Yeah, that's true. It's it's, it's it's an old lineage. It's the only thing of its kind on Earth. I was scratching we, 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 deep into the zoological recesses of my brain for that one right there. Yeah, nice, nice. No, so we're, um, we do have a few lizards, but no snakes. And snakes are really my muse, my passion. So I did have to jump the ditch. And, and long story short, I, I travel around the world talking to people about wildlife trade and sustainability and, and do a lot of work in Europe and was traveling so often that I hardly had a sustainable lifestyle myself. So to prevent one from being a hypocrite, I decided to move the family to, to France just before COVID hit. So there goes my, uh, my luck and timing and yeah, still, still stuck here. So why France? Uh, we do a lot of work with the UN that are uh, just over in Geneva um, in Switzerland, which is very close, and also with um, luxury groups that are using snakes, lizards, crocodiles for, for high-end fashion. Cool. Yeah, that's, uh, I know that the audience is going to be blown away by the conversation because, you know, obviously I'm a hunter. This is a hunting-related podcast, a hunting-related uh, brand that we have pushed, but more often than not, it's all about sustainable use. <clears throat> it's all about consumptive use. And that is your forte. So without further ado, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Because typically we always jump in and I don't ever tell anybody who's actually talking. No, absolutely. So thank you very much for having me, Robbie, on your on your podcast. So my name for the audience is, is Dan Nartouche or Daniel Nartouche. Um, I was that kid, like many kids who grew up to be hunters or wildlife lovers. I was the small boy running around in the forest, catching animals and snakes and so on. And I decided, hey, this is a bit of fun. I'm going to make this my, my career. And so I faked my way, well not faked, but did all I could to, to get through university and high school with the various physics and maths and biology degrees and managed to come out in the end with a, a PhD um, focused on reptile biology and evolution, um, but also conservation. And as a, a career person, since I've, I've done that, the primary focus of my work has been on on international wildlife trade and in particular 
ensuring that consumptive uses of wildlife, whether they be snakes or whether they be tigers or no matter what they are, is sustainable, is humane, is well-managed, transparent, legal, and, and so on. And so I get to go to many wonderful places around our beautiful planet and, and help people achieve those goals. It's funny you say fake it until you make it. It's, it's almost, you feel like that all the time. I don't know why. I, I had the same feeling. Like, like when's somebody going to catch me out that I'm about to be a PhD and, you know, you know very little about something that's very minute in this world when you get exposed to all the knowledge that is in the world. It's funny how I was, when you said that, I was like, yeah, I, I feel the same way every day still. Like, when are they going to catch me out, you know? I believe they call it imposter syndrome. Incredible. So that's exactly what we wanted to talk to you about is the whole idea of trade and the whole idea of sustainable use. And you sent me an article that sort of spurned this discussion. And I titled, I don't even know what I'm going to title this episode, but in the calendar invite, I titled it Wildlife Management by Science and Not by Bias. And it's almost what we fight every single day is bias slash opinion versus what the reality is. And to us, us being me and you as scientists, reality is science. Reality is here's what we can prove. Here is the data that we can lay out in front of you. And there's no, it's not absolute truth, but it's very difficult to refute. And so, yes. Let me start by asking a very broad question, and I apologize for how broad this question is. There is no, there is no way, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll actually, I'll narrow it to reptiles, and, and let's start with reptiles. There is, the, there is no sustainable use of reptiles on the planet, right, Daniel? That sounds like a quote from Seaspiracy. <laughs> oh my gosh, don't even start. That was ridiculous of a film but anyway yeah we'll need another whole podcast for that one um no well you'd actually be wrong robbie um there is such a thing as sustainable use of reptiles and such a thing as sustainable use of of mammals birds fish invertebrates um plants fungi across the spectrum people have been using wildlife and plants for since the dawn of our species, we co-evolved alongside animals and plants that we've been using since, um, since we came to be, and we continue to do so today as our human population has, has expanded. Some of those uses and our needs have outstripped what is possible in terms of um, population recruitment rates for some species and um, and, and sustainable levels of offtake, or what we say is maximum sustainable yield. And we do our best to, to pull those back in line. But, but the truth is, no, there are a large number of, of, of very sustainable, and, and, I, and I don't just say sustained because they have continued over long periods of time, but actually there are robust data and models that are showing that these species are resilient and can sustain sustain harvest. So not 100% not of them, but certainly for reptiles and certainly for reptiles used for skins, um, which, is, which is the focus of the paper that I, that I sent you, um, 
by far the vast majority is sustainable absolutely so you you, you talk specifically about skins and one of the things that i wanted to dig into beyond the paper um was the idea of it, How do we? How does it? How does a species achieve sustainable use? Is it tied to the? Is it tied to the value of the resource? I.e., you mentioned skins versus meat. Okay. Then we also have the the scenario, for instance, with rhinos and elephants that there is no trade. It is con currently banned. So. Do you have an opinion there on is there this is there this line in the sustainable use community that says these things tend to work, these things don't tend to work? Um, for the hardcore scientists and wildlife managers in the sustainable use community, the answer is that any species on Earth and any population of any species can withstand some level of use and offtake. You can have a rhino population with five individuals. It can withstand an offtake. It's all about how much and over what period of time. To someone to say, oh, it's impossible for that species to withstand a hunt or, or a harvest. It's simply from a theoretical, scientific, biological standpoint, it's false. So species can withstand, but it is the parameters and the harvest rates, the mortality rates, births, deaths, et cetera, that dictate what that number um, in terms of number extracted can be. And typically it is things like governance, um, access to uh, you know, property rights, it's management protocols in place that determine, and, and obviously the inherent um, biological resilience of the species is it, is it r selected versus k selected which means is it a, a fast growing highly fecund lots of offspring um lives life in the fast lane like a ferrari or is it a model t ford truck which is popping out one baby calf every 10 years type thing in which case that offtake if 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 too high can have uh, or has a greater likelihood to be be detrimental but the reality is no any species can withstand if the right parameters are in place can withstand some sort of use which is a an inconvenient truth for people that that i mean i wouldn't say love animals because i love animals but for someone that is fundamentally opposed to a trade or a use based on ideology rather than science well, and that was the whole point of the paper, right? And that's what I wanted to dig into is, and that was a good setup, is that sustainable use tends to uh, not, sustainable use should be dictated by science and most often than not, it is. However, there is another factor at play, which is social opinion. And it is the, the voicing of concerns without any sort of scientific basis. It's almost, as you point out in your paper, it is a philosophical bias to your opinion over the science that's driving the idea that your opinion is wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's, um, 
I would argue that science should, because science is not restricted to, you know, physics or chemistry or biology. There, there are social sciences, there are economic sciences, and I believe most decision making, um, whether it be in wildlife management or trade or not, you know, political decision making, etc., should be based as 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 much as possible on strong science. Science is the is the best problem solving tool that humanity has has come up with as you said in your intro it's not always perfect but and you know there are there are inherent biases our methodologies are, are limited in some cases however it is the best most objective tool we have for getting as close as possible to an ultimate truth and so it is incredibly important for issues especially like this that have a dichotomy in in points of view or social acceptance whether whether it's some people saying we should absolutely exploit and use that resource or whether the other folks are saying no we need to leave it leave it be because animals are cute and cuddly and beautiful both fair arguments from a, a human standpoint but humans are biased that is the problem and so we need to decide okay if we if our goal is conservation which mine is for example which is different to a goal of animal welfare which is different to a goal of animal rights but i'm paid and employed to be a, a conservation scientist so if that is my goal what tool do i use to get as close as possible to determining what is the best outcome for the conservation of species and sometimes that is no use you shouldn't use that right. that species because it doesn't work in that context. Sustainable right. use is not a, a a one one trick or a, or a one size fits all. Um, in the same way that prohibition is not a one size fits all. You need the science to try and toe the middle line and understand what is going to be the best thing that we can do to produce the best conservation outcomes for a species. Hence why leaving ideology out of the question is is so important and that works for the pro-use guys and the anti-use guys so the your paper was titled the perils of flawed science in wildlife trade literature and so we've talked about obviously philosophical and inherent opinion-based biases tied to tied to opinions of sustainable use but then there's also the idea and, and and unfortunately in the science world today you can find science that backs up both viewpoints you can find science that says hey sustainable use has no has no place in x species and here's the data boom 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 you can find science on the other side of the coin that says no it actually is very beneficial to population growth for community development, yada, 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 yada. And so now, and, and also you layer into the, the, um, the pay to play model and the, uh, you know, luckily I'm not in the world anymore, but you're still living in it, which is the publish or perish type scenario that you've got all these pay to play journals that they say, well, just pay us a thousand bucks and we'll publish your stuff. All of that mixed in together led us to this paper which is hey people are pushing out i you know science quote unquote data that is flawed and it is not actually true 
and is hurting the real science that is showing what sustainable use is actually doing. Yeah, exactly. I, I think this, so for the, for, the, for the audience, just to reiterate again, as academics, we get bombarded daily. I probably get 10 emails a day from what we call predatory journals. So journals, you've, no one in our field has really heard of. They maybe change their name to sound like a, a uh, well-respected or reputable journal. And as journal you say, of Robert, nature conservation. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That, I think that is a real one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's not. But it's not a. Anyway, it's not one of the top ones. And and so the problem is that for a thousand bucks, as you say, you can publish whatever you want. And the general population, it doesn't know the difference between exactly. a crappy little journal and a very prestigious journal that you would be stoked to publish in if you were in our scientific field. And it, it's a bit like, uh, I was gonna uh, do a hunting analogy, I won't, but you, you get the point, right? So, so you have these groups out there and journals that are, you know, nobody reads, none of the scientific community pays attention to, and then you have the reputable ones. And trash is being published all the time in the trashy journals. However, in this case, we had a, a, a scenario where a reasonably reputable journal published an article based on trade data. So US Fish and Wildlife, Lemus trade database of so the US government, um, Fish and Wildlife Service records all imports of any wildlife species, regardless of whether they are CITES listed or not, records those coming into the United States. And sometimes the odd thing gets seized. And so what this, these, these two authors did is they took the data that had been gathered by Lemus, they analyzed it, found a few seizures, and then wrote a paper. And they got this paper into rather a reputable journal. And yet, and, and the overall premise was that the luxury industry working with reptiles and um, trading their skins, or in this case, the products made of those skins, were all wrapped up in international wildlife crime and made out like these were criminal syndicates. Gucci and Louis Vuitton are, are masterminds behind some, behind some criminal syndicate or <laughs> wildlife smuggling ring. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating for effect slightly, but, but this was the feeling you got when reading this paper. And now as someone who is, um, who is rather au fait or knowledgeable about this particular topic, I could see that, no, this, is, this just isn't, isn't correct. And I didn't think to do anything about it at the time, but then when it was published, National Geographic picked it up, wrote an article saying that, the skin trade was awful, that the luxury um, fashion industry was awful, um, and a number of other outlets picked it up, like Business of Fashion and, and several others. And this was all predicated on a falsehood. And so we retrieved the same data, which you can get from a Freedom of Information request from the US government, and we analyzed those same data and most of the information that was in the original paper was wrong. It was actually wrong. And this was due to 
errors in analysis and errors in interpretation and so on. And we believe that the philosophical bias or the ideology that these people had, clearly animal lovers, and I don't necessarily hold anything against them again, it's, it's laudable to care for animals and to care for our environment and to care for conservation. Hunters do, conservationists do, et cetera, et cetera. Animal lovers, they all do. However, we believe that this philosophical bias had infiltrated the way that they had analyzed their data such that it was, it was so far from the truth. To give one example, we reanalyzed the same data set but looked at imports not from the luxury fashion industry but of imports of reptiles for scientific purposes for biomedical purposes for um, forensic and law enforcement purposes by u.s agencies such as the smithsonian nasa um, the u.s fish and wildlife itself and we found that the seizure rate of products or reptile parts was five times higher for national universities and museums, um, US Fish and Wildlife, credible agencies than it was for the luxury fashion industry. So by using the same logic, you would suggest that beloved US Fish and Wildlife Service, who by the way, is the same agency that does the seizures. So they've been seizing imports from their own agency um, you would suggest that they are five times more likely to be involved in wildlife crime than, than the luxury fashion industry, which is, which essentially sums up the flaws in the paper. And yet you read this and you would think that the luxury industry is driving all of those species to extinction. And just to finish, the big problem there is the real science shows the opposite. The real science is showing that this trade is actually underpinning robust management that is saving species, not harming them. Daniel, though, couldn't someone say that you have an inherent bias, though, to the sustainable use side of the equation? You know, you mentioned that they have a philosophical bias to the animal rights side, the animal lover side. Couldn't someone just level the same accusation against you that you're just approaching it from a different, a different type of bias? Um, I don't think so, because I'm actually just the messenger. I'm just the guy who punches some buttons on his keyboard and does some statistical analyses, and the data speak for themselves. I didn't make them up. Um, I'm getting them from elsewhere, or, or their population surveys by the US government or by the Indonesian government or from a government in Africa, the, the data are all there. All we do often as scientists is compile it. And so me saying this is, I wouldn't say necessarily a bias because I'm just giving a verbatim communication of what the data tell me I should say. My interpretations are based on what, what the data say. Whereas in this instance, the data do not support the conclusions and interpretations in the other paper. If they did, then we wouldn't have a problem. Sure. Um, they, they don't. And the problem is that they stand to undermine, again, these successful programs that have been established. And some of these programs have been running and successful before I was born. So for me to say, you know, I'm, I'm biased or, or something, I 
I, I would push back and say, no, I've, I've, I've done a good job at, at, at interpreting the data as it's, as it's presented. But of course, people will say I'm biased, no doubt, but that would be my response. <laughs> of course. So let's take a step back because I think it's important to see the bigger picture here. Give us an idea of why it is so important to help these luxury good brands with the science to say, look, what they're doing is good and they need to keep doing it. I guess the bigger question, and maybe there was too convoluted of a question. The simple question is, why do we want the Louis Vuittons of the world, the Gucci's of the world to still use a, a sustainable resource? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's 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 multifaceted. So I'll try and I'll try and distill it as much as possible. But as we said, there are numerous cases with reptiles that the science has established over the last forty years, so almost half a century, where because of the trade and the economic value that this trade puts on animals often wild animals that are living naturally in natural ecosystems, it has given landowners, local people and communities a reason to care, an incentive to protect those animals because their livelihoods depend on it. Indonesia is a country of 250 million people and 50% of those people live on less than three US dollars a day. One python to them is worth about 25 to 30 US dollars. Wow. And so that is a huge boost to their livelihood. Often these are subsistence, hunter-gatherer people, some of them, or local fishermen. It may be one of their only sources of cash income. I mean, the story plays out in Latin America, Africa, with different, different wildlife uses. But here's an Indonesian example with a, with a snake species used for its skin. And so by people valuing those animals they know that they need to harvest them at a sustainable rate because if they depleted them then their livelihoods would be depleted and so there's an incentive to manage the resource appropriately in addition if you are going to ensure healthy populations of wild animals you need to ensure animal homes are intact and animal homes means intact habitat it means a swamp if you're a crocodile it means a, a forest if you're a snake, perhaps. And so by caring for that animal resource, by default, you need to care for its habitat. So as biodiversity conservationists, we're incredibly pleased by that because not only are they conserving the species that they have an interest in, they conserve all the other fish and invertebrates and mammals and so on that call that piece of habitat home. It's... It's a very similar to the trophy hunting arguments where trophy hunting is, is working well. Um, it, it's about giving that incentive to people. And much like trophy hunting of large predators, I mean, five people have been killed and eaten by reticulated pythons in one Indonesian island alone over the last four years. Wow. I mean, these are, these are snakes that, Robbie, they could kill and eat you and I. And we're... we're large Caucasian dudes, right? <laughs> I mean, these are serious snakes and I don't need to tell you about Nile crocodiles and saltwater crocodiles. These are dangerous animals to live with. 
No one wants a big bloody crocodile in their backyard or in their right. billabong. Right. I mean, these things are eating children, they're eating livestock. You know what a you know what cattle are like for people in Africa. Mm. A cattle beast is worth more than their child. You know, it's, mm. there's something about Africans and their cattle. And and these are such prized animals and they are being eaten by in the same way that they are by lions, they're being eaten by crocodiles. And so how do you how do you say to someone, hey, we care about the crocodiles, you should keep them in that waterway. They go, no, we want to poison them or we want to shoot them. The way that you do that is through um, is through this incentivized sustainable use. And, and the big thing for us is just like trophy hunting again, you get rid of it, you get rid of the system. And what's the alternative? Is it a monoculture of soy? Is it a monoculture of cotton from this from the point of view of the luxury brands, there is, and we've done the analysis, it will soon come out soon on an objective, uh, on an objective um, a life cycle analysis that shows that reptile skins in terms of the materials that the luxury industry can use are inherently, in terms of climate change, in terms of nutrification, in terms of water use um, and so on, inherently, the most sustainable raw material that you can use. Forget cotton, forget viscose or polyester, PVC plastics and all that crap made of fossil fuels or whatever. We're talking about a natural raw material that links to the story I just told where you're protecting habitats and people. And then, you know, there's essentially no environmental footprint. The tanning process has a few chemicals that need to be um, dealt with, but apart from that, in terms of impact on the planet, this is a hyper, hyper sustainable material. You know, we do not want to be living in a, in a monoculture of grass or cotton or cattle, exactly like the trophy hunting argument. You want bushveld, you don't want monocultures of maize. Right. And this is what we're trying to recreate. And so as, as conservationists move towards regenerative agriculture and nature-based solutions for, that work for people and planet, these are the types of things we need to think about. And no, we're not saying everyone needs to wear snakeskin underpants. We're just saying that this is a good material. It can be done well and people need to stick with it because of those benefits, because without it, the alternative is much, much worse. Daniel, are you saying that you own snakeskin underpants? That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I'm not a big fan of snakeskin myself, but um, for people that are, it's, uh, well, it's, a, good, it's a great... That's an interesting point then, that you're not a big fan of snakeskin just as a, as a, as a visual, or, but, you, but you, you, know, you champion it every single day. Is it just in jest or just... No, no, I mean, I, I'm, uh, it, I don't find it aesthetically very pleasing to the eye. I mean, I like crocodile skin. That's a nice leather, um, but I, I prefer beef leather. The snake, not so much. Interesting. Hmm. I think you should use that a lot because that will, you know, put a cork in people's mouths when they talk about bias. You say, well, I actually don't like this stuff, uh, but I, you know, I champion its, its use every single day. I mean, t speaking of bias, and I know you're, you're the one asking the questions, but... <laughs> People, people's um, <laughs> taking over now. People's uh, one thing they can say about what I do is we work closely with the luxury industry. 
So we actually work with as, as IUCN. So I'm chair of, of IUCN's boa and python specialist group. So we're a, a group of, of conservationists around the world that work specifically to conserve and, and save boas and pythons. Um, and, and many of us within this group actually work closely with the luxury industry. Some of us do paid consultancies, et cetera. And so people, people would be within their right to say, hey, you just want to protect this trade because, um, because of the money you make from, from exactly. the consultancies. Exactly. And, and so that, that is a tricky one. I guess it's a, a tricky one to defend as well. And it's just one of these things where, again, the science speaks for itself. And, and I, therefore, because people can say these types of things or make these types of accusations, I'm hyper diligent with the science that I do. It's, it's analysis and then reanalysis and reanalysis and then have five other people analyze the same data to ensure I didn't cock it up um, so that we're, we know we're squeaky clean. Um, but in the end, it's, it's, it's one of these things where you know, people, people don't know us and they don't, they don't understand what drives us and, and what our passion buttons are and, and I think the thing here is the luxury industry goes away. A lot of animals are still going to be killed, just like in the trophy hunting argument. Mm -hmm. Those animals are going to be snared or poisoned for bush meat or just mm -hmm. because they're a nuisance. Yep. And that's true of the trade in reptiles also. But with the luxury industry, and I say this to them quite often, they probably don't like it, but I say, I'm not here to make a billion dollar fashion brand more money or make more money for your shareholders. That's not my modus operandi. That's not why I was put on this planet. I'm using you and I'm using your money to achieve the things that I want to achieve for conservation. And it just so happens that what you want, sustainability of the resource for a sustainable business and, and economic output is exactly what I want. Because if you can ensure something is sustainable, then by definition, you've also conserved it. And right. there are some areas where improvements need to be made. It's not a flawless, perfect industry. No industry is, just like hunting. It's not, it's not perfect. There are many wonderful stories and benefits, and 95% of it is great. But we need to get that 5%, and we do need to iron it out. There is some illegal trade. There, is, there are some animal welfare issues, not so much with killing, but with reptiles mainly, you know, transport of the animals, the conditions, some of these countries they're working in are, are you know, infrastructure is rudimentary and so on. And with the, the leverage and the money, let's face it, the money that the luxury industry has to do conservation means they're a logical partner. Because if they step away, then everything's going to go to China. And with the greatest respect to our, our Chinese colleagues, China doesn't have the same... Um, cares or wants or needs they are in a different stage of their development than, than, than the West and their views on some of these things are, are different and they, they simply wouldn't put the time and money into making these great sustainable use success stories. Mm -hmm. And so by partnering with and keeping the luxury industry in the fold or still working with this, this trade, we can really make some massive improvements and, we, and we've done that. Yeah, you're, you're speaking my language, man. And, you know, people will say, well, you, you defend hunting because you're a hunter. And that is true. But 
I'm defending hunting because I know that the consequence of the action, like you just described, the consequence of this, the, the trade of the specific species, whatever it may be, reticulated python or crocodile or alligator, has multiple benefits beyond the benefit that you're seeking, i.e. in hunting, the recreation or the trophy on the wall, or uh, from your perspective, the watch band of, you know, reticulated python or whatever it is. The mm. consequence of the action, the saving of habitat, the non um, specific non-target species that are being saved that are being cared for that are being protected because of the action all of those things is what i'm interested in is what i want my kids to see one day i want my grandkids to see one day and to me and to you the actions that we champion are the actions that currently today and i'll be the first one to say it if someone came to me and said hey there's a different way to do things you can save the same amount of habitat you can save the same amount of wildlife and we can provide for this for the communities in the same way but we just don't have to kill animals okay show me show me a better way if you have it great i'm all for it but right now there is no better way exactly and and, and people like myself conservationists we're not willing to wait 400 years or however long it takes for an alternative to to pop its head up and people to say okay this is an alternative we like because in 400 years we've lost mm. half of what or all of what we're trying to conserve anyway and i think that is the main thing you know i'm i'm i don't have any love for the fashion industry i mean it's i'm about as fashionable as a as a dying camel <laughs> I'm, I'm, i don't have a creative bone in my body but um but i would not be doing my job if I did not recognize the benefits that the industry brings and recognize that currently there isn't a better alternative. And so it would be very wrong of me not to support it and not to support the truth and facts that underpin it. Exactly. Well, my man, I know that we got introduced, uh, what, probably a year and a half ago through a good mutual friend in Georgia, Christy Plot, And I plan to have her on here to talk about alligators um here in the near future but um yeah i appreciate you sending me the paper and i really appreciate the the friendship um you know you sending me the paper and just thinking that we have a voice and an outlet and i much appreciate um the trust in being able to you know speak very very amicably about a, a you know a discussion topic and me able to push you a little bit in uh, in our thought pattern around this, these things that we love so much, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there's a, a lot of synergies, a lot of the, the same battles and challenges. And, and ultimately, you know, that's, that is the irony of, of all this is that most people, no matter which side they sit on, want, want the same thing. And that's, and that's positive outcomes for wildlife. And so the more we can have these, these chats and be open and friendly and over beers, over coffees, over whatever podcasts, um, hopefully we can we can get closer to achieving that goal that we all ultimately want. Exactly. Well, look, my man, I'll let you get back to your day in France and your beautiful apartment that I see behind you. <laughs> uh, for those that don't know, obviously we're on Zoom and Daniel has one of those Zoom backgrounds uh, masking look, what his house really looks like. But like we said, fake it till you make it. <laughs> 
Well, um, where can people find your work, Daniel? Is there anywhere that specifically if they want to look more into the wildlife trade and sustainable use of reptiles or snakes or alligators, is there a, a, a good place to go? Yeah, I mean, if you're into scientific literature, then Google Scholar is a fairly easy place. You can just Google my name and with the word reptile or snake and you should find a fair amount of, of material. Otherwise, I... I run a company called Epic Biodiversity um, that that works on all these issues. Most of our work is, is for CITES in the UN and IUCN, but also um, increasingly with the, the luxury industry. So if you have any interest in those sorts of topics and want to chat, then yeah, feel free to drop me a line. Cool. I didn't want to derail this conversation, but the next time we get together, and it, it, will, it will be a next time, I'd really like to get your opinion on whether you agree with or disagree with the idea of trading in rhino horns or, you know, trading in ivory. Let's, um, let's do that. I'd love to, love to share some thoughts. Fantastic. Well, look, my friend, I much appreciate you. I much appreciate you jumping on here. And I know that uh, the folks out there really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, cool. It was a pleasure. And likewise, keep up all the good things you're doing, buddy. Yes, sir. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.